Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald Scotland, Wednesday, 5th of May, 2021. Strike Warrior. Fears over environmental impacts of major military exercises in Scotland by Caitlin Hutchison. Scottish CND, Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, has responded with anger and concern to the NATO exercise Strike Warrior, largely taking place in Scotland from next week. Scotland is to play host to elements of Exercise Strike Warrior 21, one of the largest military exercises of its kind, which has prompted fears over the potential environmental impacts inflicted on Scotland's waters. The exercise will run from May the 8th to 20th as part of the final preparations for the first deployment of the UK's Carrier Strike Group, CSG, next month. HMS Queen Elizabeth, the Royal Navy's fleet flagship at the centre of the CSG, will deploy shortly after the completion of Strike Warrior. Ten nations will take part, with 31 warships, three submarines, 150 aircraft and around 13,400 military personnel involved. It will include 1,500 ground troops at military ranges across the country and maritime exercise areas off the west and north coasts. Australia will join NATO nations, the UK, the US, Denmark, France, Germany, Latvia, the Netherlands, Norway and Poland in taking part with 34 naval units. Exercise activity will also be held in the North Minch to the west of Aleppo, involving fast small boats, both civilian and military, with GPS denial operations off the west coast. Mine countermeasures operations will take place in areas around Campbelltown and Loch U, while joint firing activity will take place at Cape Wrath Weapons Range, Garvey Island and the Quinetique Hebrides Range. The 150 aircraft involved will operate from RAF Lossiemouth, Presswick Airport and Stornoway Airport. The exercises will mirror a broad range of crisis and conflict situations which would happen in real-world operations. However, Scottish CND, founded in 1958, have expressed their anger at the war game and accused it of being irresponsible in the midst of the coronavirus epidemic and climate crisis. The organisation's main activities include campaigning for the abolition of nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction. Lynn Jameson, chair of the Scottish CND, said, The UK government has not been coy about this war game. This aggressive behaviour is utterly infantile and irresponsible in the midst of a pandemic and a climate crisis, when the clear and urgent challenge is to learn to collaborate for the safety of us all and the future of the planet. It will involve a colossal addition to the carbon emissions 
and a foolish diversion of resources from socially vital services. Importing 1,500 personnel to the area during the pandemic shows a fundamental disregard for the current restrictions and for the people of the Western Isles and the Western Highlands. The Scottish CND says it wants something more wholesome for Scotland's waters in a bid to gain a reputation for peace, not war. Ms Jameson added, We are already hosting a multitude of UK military bases and installations and it is intolerable that we are also forced to be the military playground for the United Kingdom and NATO. However, the Ministry of Defence, MOD, has insisted it takes its environmental responsibilities very seriously, with the environmental impacts of military exercises always considered in their planning. Royal Navy spokesperson, Commander A.J. Stevens, said, It is essential that the armed forces of the United Kingdom exercise to ensure they are ready to deal with the many threats posed to our nation. Joint Warrior is one of the many long-planned exercises that provide realistic training for not just the UK's forces, but provides an opportunity for our allies and partners to conduct joint training against a range of current and potential future threats. According to the MOD, Enviral impact assessments were produced and findings implemented where required, including for the use of active sonar and live weapons in order to reflect all current and proposed protected wildlife areas within the exercise operating area. That includes the proposed Inner Hebrides and the Minshew Special Area of Conservation, which is currently under public consultation. This article was written by Caitlin Hutchison. Recorded from the Herald on the 5th of May 2021, from the Sports section, BBC Scotland to show Scottish Premiership playoff semi-finals by Aidan MacDonald. Football fans will be able to watch live coverage of all the semi-final games in the Scottish Premiership playoffs. The ties, which will involve the winners of Wraith Rovers and Dunfermline against Dundee, will kick off at 19.45 and take place on May 12th and 15th. The matches will air on the BBC Scotland channel. The winners will face whoever finishes second bottom in the top flight and highlights of both of those legs will also be available on the BBC soon after the matches finish. Sky Sports retain the rights to show the playoff final for the Scottish Premiership. The agreement is part of a new five-year deal in which BBC Scotland can show the Premiership quarter-finals and semi-finals. That article was by Aidan MacDonald. Recorded from the Herald on the 5th of May 2021. From the Sports section. Stephen Gerrard provides update on Jermaine Defoe's Rangers future. For Christopher Jack. Stephen Gerrard has confirmed Rangers have opened discussions with Jermaine Defoe regarding extension to his contract to keep him at Ibrox next season. The 38-year-old scored his sixth goal of the campaign in the 4-1 victory over Celtic on Sunday as Rangers secured in fourth Old Firm win this term and moved to within two fixtures, away to Livingston and at home to Aberdeen, of an unbeaten Premiership season. Gerrard has already secured the services of Alan McGregor and Stephen Davis for another 12 months as preparations begin for Rangers' title defence and return to the Champions League later this summer. Talks are also ongoing with the likes of Conor Goldson and Glenn Kamara over fresh terms towards them for their fine efforts 
and Defoe is on the list of Ibrox stars that Gerard is keen to keep as part of his squad next term. The Englishman is out of contract at the end of the season and will have a decision to make over whether he remains in Glasgow and continues working with his former international teammate at Ibrox. Gerard said, It goes without saying that Jermaine Defoe is someone I have the ultimate respect and admiration for. He's been a wonderful player. He's had a wonderful career. To get him up here in the first place was something I was keen to do because I knew he would help the group in the way he goes about his business. He's a top professional. We're in talks with Jermaine at the moment about what's next for Jermaine, but we want to be really respectful. We want to give him the time to make his own decisions. I think he's at the stage in his life where we'll listen to Jermaine and see what he wants to do moving forward. We'll go from there. I don't think it's right for me to divulge right now what's been said from my point of view and from his. But we'll certainly respect Jermaine in terms of his own decisions moving forward. That article was by Christopher Jack. From the Herald Scotland, dated Wednesday 5th May 2021. From the Voices section. Scots University suspends lecturer as SOP to woke warriors. An article by Stuart Wayton. Edinburgh University is becoming an embarrassment to Scotland. Having renamed the David Hume Tower after woke protests, they have now suspended and shamed a liberal anthropology lecturer for daring to say things that most people think. I'd say you all know the case of Dr Neil Thin by now, but the coverage of the case has been sparse to say the least. Search his name on the BBC website and you'll find with irony that the great British Broadcasting Corporation were more than happy to have Dr Thin on their Radical Thinking programme in 2016. Today, in contrast, as 60-year-old Thin is cancelled and humiliated by the university, the BBC, in their wisdom, see no story. After 34 years of teaching, Dr Thin has been suspended from teaching while he is investigated for his outrageous views. Shamefully, this academic believes in freedom of speech and thought. Worse still, he thinks J.K. Rowling might have a point about transgender people, and he has dared to suggest that having an anti-racist conference at Edinburgh University that excludes all white people may not be the best way to fight racism. You can find Thin's offensive opinions online. His views on race are very similar to those of Martin Luther King. He is a universalist. He believes that the best society is a colour-blind society, where everyone is treated equally, and he opposes the cancelling of historical figures like David Hume. Shame on him. Our politically and emotionally correct university administrators, no doubt helped by inhuman resources, have, I'm sure, acted appropriately, followed the correct procedures and are only interested in the well-being of students. But when did the well-being of students mean trampling upon the principle of academic freedom and freedom of thought and debate? And when did this well-being issue mean that you follow the lead of the 0.1% of complaining students to the detriment of the rest? Online comments accuse Dr Thin of having offensive, bigoted, racist, misogynistic, transphobic views that trigger students. As usual, our young activists have called for Neil Thin to receive all sorts of training. 
so that this doctor of anthropology can be reprogrammed, Salem-like, to appreciate that David Hume and the rest really are witches that need to be burned from our memory. One of the great tragedies of recent times is that universities are becoming, perhaps for the first time in their history, less liberal than the rest of society. Having in principle at least been the place and space to develop new ideas and challenge orthodoxies of all kinds, universities are becoming illiberal, dogmatic institutions. And once a dogma is accepted, the witch hunting will inevitably follow. University UK, the body that represents university heads for example, last year published their report tackling racial harassment in higher education. In it they endorsed the highly contested views of critical race theorists regarding decolonisation of the curriculum, the idea of microaggressions and the existence of white privilege. Elsewhere we find that Middlesex University has announced that it formally rejects the government's race report and acknowledges the existence of systemic and institutional racism. What other contested opinions, I wonder, will our universities formally reject, so that only certain opinions and academics are given the rubber stamp of approval? Perhaps we could start tattooing a big letter R on the heads of racist academics like Dr Thin, as a new form of trigger warning for students. What has happened to Neil Thin is happening all over the university sector. Here you will find both academics and perhaps more worryingly students facing our cancel culture for expressing certain opinions. Few make the press and in many cases people simply keep their heads down and avoid saying, teaching or writing about certain issues. Make no mistake, what we are witnessing is a modern form of witch hunting by the very institutions that should be at the forefront of promoting an open liberal education. A spokesman for the University of Edinburgh said, As a university we are committed to upholding the rights to freedom of expression and academic freedom and facilitating an environment where staff and students are able to inquire, study and debate. Any complaints received as a result of such matters are treated seriously and are subject to the university's standard internal procedures. This article was by Stuart Wayton. The Herald, Thursday the 6th of May 2021. News. Coronavirus Scotland. Covid anxiety syndrome is cause for concern, says Scott's expert. This article is by Caitlin Hutchison. The coronavirus pandemic has made socialising in person nigh on impossible for over a year now, so it's no wonder many people are feeling nervous about restrictions easing and the emerging phenomenon of COVID anxiety syndrome is on the rise. If you suffer from it, you might feel reluctant to use public transport, apprehensive about developing a cough or uneasy when in close proximity with other people. But it's not just about feeling a bit nervous at the prospect of mixing with strangers. It's a mental health disorder that can affect work, school and your daily routine. It can have devastating impacts on a person's life. Dr Chris Hand of Glasgow Caledonian University, GCU, is a lecturer in psychology 
and believes anxiety surrounding COVID-19, while at some levels is to be expected, can become a serious cause for concern. According to Dr Hand, COVID anxiety syndrome is a special type of psychological response related to the pandemic, which seems to be a specific reaction to the threat of infection and illness. It's especially evident in individuals who were susceptible to anxiety and depression prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, he explained. It's basically a malfunction of our typical coping strategies and our general ability to monitor for signs of threat to ourselves and those around us. And at a time when many of us are likely on edge and seeking supplementary coping strategies, it's important to keep an eye on any behaviours that develop which could prove damaging to our mental health. It's hard to pick apart what is a typical response to the real and obvious threat of infection and illness and what is problematic behaviour, Dr Hand said. It's fair to say that many of us are a wee bit more hesitant about doing certain things than we would have been before. For example, we might be less confident or comfortable in using public transport. We might all be a bit more aware of developing a cough or feeling unwell. We might be more likely to monitor how close we are to others and how close they are to us. Dr Hand also stressed that feeling apprehensive about our health is perfectly normal, but said it should be cause for concern if it becomes chronic and starts to disrupt other aspects of our lives. For the GCU lecturer, if people can't think of anything else but getting infected or being ill, they may start engaging in unhealthy behaviours, such as having a really strong reluctance to resume activities that have been deemed safe by public health authorities, or a heightened sense of fear and anxiety, even in situations when all parties are following guidelines. For example, if someone has a very strong stress response, adrenaline rush, quickened heart rate, etc., and fear of COVID infection, if they see someone else in their supermarket aisle, even though it's clear that they will not come within two metres at any point, they're not touching the same goods and both parties are wearing masks, he added. Being a wee bit hesitant to go back to the pub, not really fancying getting on a bus is a typical response to a threat, that is still very real, but completely refusing to leave the house for fear of contracting COVID, bleaching door handles multiple times a day are problems. But Dr Hand said there are easy ways to ease anxiety if you find yourself feeling worried or uncomfortable. Following the guidelines as laid out by our local authorities is a big help, he explained. This helps you and helps others around you manage their own anxieties. Only do things that you're comfortable with. If you're not ready to get out and about in busy places, then hold off for a while. Dr Hand also emphasised that just because you can do something doesn't mean you have to. Say no to invitations if you're not fully comfortable with the activity or the location or the other people who might be involved, he said. The best thing that we can do is take control of our own situations. Hobbies are helpful, reading, cooking, jigsaws, watching fictional TV and films, listening to music, singing, dancing, being active, 
all these things can be really helpful. And try to take breaks from the news cycle. Maybe allot yourself a narrow time window per day for catching up on any COVID news. Crucially, Dr Hans said it is totally normal to be apprehensive about illness, especially due to the way the COVID-19 pandemic has dominated our lives over the past year, and he is hopeful we'll soon be back to normal. As restrictions ease, we'll adapt, he said. We'll start to do things in more psychologically busy environments, we'll tune out the COVID thinking and start to enjoy other things again. However, that doesn't mean that everyone will spring back to normality at the same pace and some of us will need longer to adjust. It's important that we are all respectful of the fact that different people will take longer to adjust and that for a number of people, it may be a very difficult transition, he explained. Not everyone experienced the last 14 months or so equally and neither will we all experience these next steps equally. New research suggests one in five may have COVID anxiety syndrome where they're locked in a state of continuous anxiety and fear of contracting the virus. The research by London South Bank University, LSBU, found one in five of 286 UK-based survey participants scored highly on the COVID-19 anxiety syndrome scale in February and used forms of coping such as a constant attention to threat, worry, avoidance and excessive checking. Fear of catching the virus meant 54% of those surveyed strongly endorsed avoiding public transport, 49% avoided touching things in public places, 38% tried not to go out to public places, 14% paid close attention to others displaying possible virus symptoms, and 9% strongly endorsed reading virus news even when they were supposed to be working. This article is by Caitlin Hutchison. The Herald, Thursday the 6th of May 2021. News. Northern Ireland at 100. How Scotland became a refuge for a boy lost in the troubles. This article is by Neil Mackay. I've always thought of my homeland, Northern Ireland, as a dark looking glass. If you stare into it long and hard enough, truths will appear which you never wanted to learn. Too many of us, though, are scared to peer into that mirror. We'd rather break it. I stared into that mirror so long I dissolved my own sense of identity. It was painful, but I'm better for it. My tortured country is 100 years old this week, conceived in blood, born in blood, raised in blood, aged in blood. We've been killing each other for a century over who we are and who we want to be, over the curse of identity. I never knew who I was growing up in Northern Ireland. I was born in 1970 at the start of the Troubles. What a craven euphemism for ethnic civil war. My father came from the Ulster Protestant Loyalist tradition my mother from the Irish Catholic Republican tradition. So what was I? Even then, this muddle of identity wasn't as clear-cut as just another mixed marriage. It's a cruel absurdity that my country even had a term, 
mixed marriage for love that crossed religious boundaries in the 20th century, though in many ways we've never escaped the 1600s. To complicate matters, my Irish Republican family had some English swirled in, and the Ulster Loyalists had a Catholic smattering. There were Scots too, both Catholic and Protestant. Growing up, I thought I was unique. I wasn't. There were thousands like me, confused, lost because their blood wouldn't accord with Ulster's us or them hatreds. In Ulster, you had to pick a side, though. My maternal grandmother had fought for the Irish Republic in the War of Independence between 1919 and 1921. On the other side, family had fought to keep Ulster British. As a boy, with the land soaked in blood, Irish blood, British blood, Ulster blood, I couldn't pick a side. If I picked one, I felt I'd be acquiescing in the murder of the other. Until my mid-teens, when I studied the history of my island and was able to make as dispassionate a judgment call as I could on where right and wrong lay, I tried desperately to reject everything connected to my homeland. My name became very important to me as a boy. I could find a hiding place in its Scottishness. I didn't want the baggage of Ulster or Ireland or England each bound up in brutality and murder in my eyes. But Scotland seemed like us, like Irish or English or Ulster folk, but not us, a safer us. I remember, with a twinge of hot shame now, trying to obliterate my sense of Ulsterness and Irishness. I recall Scotland at the 1978 World Cup as a moment when I really tried to latch on to the idea that I could be Scottish as if Scotland was some sanctuary of identity. The irony is, I never liked football. Perhaps in some subconscious way, this played a part in me deciding to move to Scotland 25 years ago, a place where I could raise my children, safely sheltered from history. In Northern Ireland, identity cut so deep you can die for it. By my late teens, I'd reasoned with the history of England and Ireland, employing as much equanimity of mind as I could muster amid a sea of blood. Britain, I felt, should never have come to Ireland. Ireland should be united. This I still believe. I want to see my island whole again. Britain's involvement in Ireland has but one boast. Centuries of suffering. I don't identify, though, as an Irish nationalist or Republican, there's too much blood there, just as there's too much blood when it comes to Ulster Unionism or Loyalism. In truth, I don't really identify as anything anymore. If you push me hard, I'll say I'm Irish and an adoptive Scot, but I'd sooner burn any flag than salute it. Show me a patriot and I'll show you danger. Irish unity, though, is a long way away. If Ireland is ever united, I pray it comes without a whisper of violence. The ballot box is the only path. I'd like to take all the guns in Ireland and drown them in the sea. And while I may wish to see Ireland united, I don't want my many friends and family who cherish their Britishness to feel robbed, humiliated. Let unity come gently for everyone.
if the last century taught us anything, it's that we must put our arms around each other. If we're to speak of the end of Northern Ireland in its 100th year, that's the only way to walk towards change in friendship, the past buried. I fear that's wishful thinking by an exile and exiles while they see their countries clearly are always utopian. I'm not alone as a child of the Troubles in my struggle with identity. The Scots, Welsh and English think all us Ulster folk can be pigeonholed on one side or the other. That's patronising ignorance. There's a silent majority of people in the North who are quite simply nothing other than human beings who want to get on with their lives without hurting or being hurt over something as meaningless and fictional as a flag or a border. If Northern Ireland is a mirror though, the British state is scared to look too, fearful of what it will see. If the British people had the courage to stare deep enough, they'd be shaken to their core. They'd see how a country which claims to be the mother of democracies shredded democracy through its actions in Northern Ireland for the last century. First propping up a sectarian state, then unleashing state violence against civilians. If the people of Ireland and Ulster are soaked in blood, Britain bathed deep and long too. That Britain still refuses to acknowledge its sins in Ireland, that it celebrates with bloody hands impunity for soldiers who shot civilians, shows how terribly Britain warped and corrupted itself through its dreadful history with my troubled country a history which has diminished us all. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. This article is by Neil Mackay. Recorded from the Herald on the 6th of May 2021. From the sports section. Eight Scots named in British and Irish Lions squad ahead of South Africa tour by Aidan Smith. Eight Scots were today named in the 37-strong British and Irish Lions squad heading to South Africa this summer. Alan Wynne-Jones, the current captain of Wales, will lead Warren Gatland's side. Scotland captain Stuart Hogg has been selected for his third consecutive tour after wearing the famous red shirt on both the 2013 and 2017 campaigns during which he played seven matches. Selected for the first time for the British and Irish Lions are Edinburgh Trio, Hamish Watson, Johan van der Meer and Rory Sutherland, and Glasgow Warriors, Sander Fagerson and Ali Price. Meanwhile, Racing 92's Finn Russell gets a second call-up having joined the 2017 Tour as mid-tour addition and Gloucester's Chris Harris is also named in the 37-man squad. Gatland is being supported in his Lions coaching team by one of Scotland's heroes of the 1997 Gregor Townsend, who will lead the attack, and Scotland coach Steve Tandy, leading the defence. Scottish Rugby's Chief Executive Officer Mark Dodson said, I am delighted eight Scotland players have been selected today in the British and Irish Lions squad. This is the biggest contingent that Scotland has had in the initial touring party since nine were named for the 1989 tour to Australia, which was captained by Finlay Calder. The competitiveness we have shown throughout the last two Six Nations Championship campaigns is now underlined by today's announcement. It affirms we are producing players to compete 
alongside some of the best in the world, and I warmly congratulate all the Scottish players and the whole 37-man squad on their selection. Scottish Rugby's Director of High Performance, Jim Mallander, added, I am incredibly excited to see all of these players selected in the 37-man squad for the 2021 British and Irish Lions Tour. The experience that they and our coaches Gregor Townsend and Steve Tandy will gain from being on this tour is fantastic. I wish them all the best in the upcoming campaign in South Africa. The squad of 37 players will meet at a training camp in Jersey prior to their warm-up fixture against Japan at BT Murrayfield on June 26th. They will then head out to South Africa where they will play eight matches. This will include three test matches against the current world champions Springboks. That article was by Aidan Smith, recorded from the Herald on the 6th of May 2021, from the sports section. Academy Chief admits Rangers' frustrations with SFA and SPFL and slams unacceptable Scottish player pathway, by Matthew Lindsay. Craig Mulholland, the head of Rangers Academy, last night described Scotland being the only country in Europe not having a pathway for players aged between 17 and 21 as unacceptable as he outlined the benefits of Colts teams playing in the Lowland League for the Ibrox club and football in this country. The Lowland League are currently considering an ambitious proposal to allow Celtic and Rangers Colts teams to play in their division for a year, but their chairman George Fraser has spoken positively of the plan. Speaking to Rangers TV, Mulholland admitted the Rangers hierarchy had frustrations with both the SFA and SPFL and stressed the need for Scotland to change to keep in touch with the leading European nations. He said, We believe we're the only club in Europe not to have a pathway for our 17 to 21 year olds. In Scotland at the moment, we've got an under 18 team, then there is nothing until you get to the men's first football team. This is unacceptable. What has happened here is George Fraser, the chairman of the Lowland League, he was on the Football Innovation Working Group and he has come up with a solution, which is terrific, that we play in the Lowland League for one year and fill that gap that exists between academy football and first team football. We are excited about the talks that are taking place so far. First and foremost, the Lowland League is a members organisation and what we had to do was make sure there was a benefit there for the Lowland Leagues as well. We are very open about the fact that it benefits Rangers and we think it will benefit some of Scotland's best young talent. But importantly, there really has to be the benefit for the Lowland League. If we look at the model, it is a one-year model, which means there is no promotion or relegation. If you are a Lowland League team and have aspirations to get into the SPFL, even if we won the league, the next place team would go into the SPFL playoffs. Nothing changes there. There is nothing detrimental to the Lowland League clubs. What we hope to do is bring a fan base to the league. We hope to bring a sponsor to the league. We hope we may get a broadcast deal out of our involvement. Importantly for the Lowland League, we are committed to supporting them and the authenticity of the pyramid. Mulholland added, we have our frustrations with the SPFL and the SFA in terms of pushing the innovation of the B team. The strategic partnerships and everything that is contained within the football innovation paper. For the Lowland League, they have their frustrations that the pathway to the SPFL for aspirational clubs, for ambitious clubs, has also been closed. What I think we want to mutually do with this one-year pilot is shine a light on the ambition and the aspiration of some of the really progressive clubs that exist in the Lowland League. We'll bring 
real financial benefit to some of the clubs as we come out of the pandemic to some of their clubs. But at the same time, from our point of view, we will make sure that our young players are getting a really competitive environment to go and develop, hopefully pushing towards the implementation of the innovation paper in 2022-2023. Look at Croatia as an example. They have a population similar to Scotland and they reached a World Cup final. I think it was 67% of their squad who played in the World Cup finals had played in B teams in their country. There weren't lots of B teams, it was only their three major clubs. They established the route from the academy to the first team could be challenging. We hear someone use the line, and this was really frustrating for us, about those countries that use it are really successful countries. That in itself perhaps indicates why we should do it. We're not saying this is a panache to cure all else, we're not. It needs to be part of a wider structure and a bigger model. That article was by Matthew Lindsay. From the Herald Scotland, dated Thursday 6 May 2021. From the Voices section. How Scotland became a refuge for a boy lost in the Troubles. An article by Neil McKay, writer-at-large. I've always thought of my homeland, Northern Ireland, as a dark looking-glass. If you stare into it long and hard enough, truths will appear which you never wanted to learn. Too many of us, though, are scared to peer into that mirror. We'd rather break it. I stared into that mirror so long I dissolved my own sense of identity. It was painful, but I'm better for it. My tortured country is 100 years old this week. Conceived in blood, born in blood, raised in blood, aged in blood. We've been killing each other for a century over who we are and who we want to be, over the curse of identity. I never knew who I was growing up in Northern Ireland. I was born in 1970 at the start of the Troubles. What a craven euphemism for ethnic civil war. My father came from the Ulster Protestant Loyalist tradition. My mother from the Irish Catholic Republican tradition. So what was I? Even then, this muddle of identity wasn't as clear-cut as just another mixed marriage. It's a cruel absurdity that my country even had a term, mixed marriage, for love that crossed religious boundaries in the 20th century. Though in many ways we've never escaped the 1600s. To complicate matters, my Irish Republican family had some English swelled in, and the Ulster Loyalists had a Catholic smattering. There were Scots too, both Catholic and Protestant. Growing up, I thought I was unique. I wasn't. There were thousands like me, confused, lost, because their blood wouldn't accord with Ulster's us-or-them hatreds. In Ulster, you had to pick a side, though. My maternal grandmother had fought for the Irish Republic in the War of Independence between 1919 and 1921. On the other side, family had fought to keep Ulster British, as a boy, with the land soaked in blood, Irish blood, British blood, Ulster blood, I couldn't pick a side. If I picked one, I felt I'd be acquiescing in the murder of the other. 
Until my mid-teens, when I studied the history of my island and was able to make as dispassionate a judgment call as I could on where right and wrong lay, I tried desperately to reject everything connected to my homeland. My name became very important to me as a boy. I could find a hiding place in its Scottishness. I didn't want the baggage of Ulster or Ireland or England, each bound up in brutality and murder in my eyes. But Scotland seemed like us, like Irish or English or Ulster folk, but not us, a safer us. I remember with a twinge of hot shame now, trying to obliterate my sense of Ulsterness and Irishness. I recall Scotland at the 1978 World Cup as a moment when I really tried to latch on to the idea that I could be Scottish, as if Scotland was some sanctuary of identity. The irony is I never liked football. Perhaps in some subconscious way this played a part in me deciding to move to Scotland 25 years ago, a place where I could raise my children, safely sheltered from history. In Northern Ireland, Identity cuts so deep you can die for it. By my late teens I'd reasoned with the history of England and Ireland, employing as much equanimity of mind as I could muster amid a sea of blood. Britain, I felt, should never have come to Ireland. Ireland should be united. This I still believe. I want to see my Ireland whole again. Britain's involvement in Ireland has but one boast. Centuries of suffering. I don't identify, though, as an Irish nationalist or Republican. There's too much blood there, just as there's too much blood when it comes to Ulster Unionism or Loyalism. In truth, I don't really identify as anything anymore. If you push me, hard, I'll say I'm Irish and an adoptive Scot, but I'd sooner burn any flag than salute it. Show me a patriot and I'll show you danger. Irish unity, though, is a long way away. If Ireland is ever united, I pray it comes without a whisper of violence. The ballot box is the only path. I'd like to take all the guns in Ireland and drown them in the sea. But while I may wish to see Ireland united, I don't want my many friends and family who cherish their Britishness to feel robbed, humiliated. Let unity come gently for everyone. If the last century taught us anything, it's that we must put our arms around each other. If we are to speak to the end of Northern Ireland in its 100th year, that's the only way to walk towards change. In friendship. The past buried. I fear that's wishful thinking by an exile. And exiles, while they see their countries clearly, are always utopian. I'm not alone as a child of the Troubles in my struggle with identity. The Scots, Welsh and English think all of us Ulster folk can be pigeonholed as one side or the other. That's patronising ignorance. There's a silent majority of people in the North who are quite simply nothing other than human beings who want to get on with their lives, without hurting or being hurt over something as meaningless and fictional as a flag or a border. If Northern Ireland is a mirror, though, the British state is scared to look too, fearful of what it will see. If the British people had the courage to stare deep enough, they'd be shaken to their core. 
they'd see how a country which claims to be the mother of democracies shredded democracy through its actions in Northern Ireland for the last century. First propping up a sectarian state, then unleashing state violence against civilians. If the people of Ireland and Ulster are soaked in blood, Britain bathes deep and long too. That Britain still refuses to acknowledge its sins in Ireland. That it celebrates with bloody hands impunity for soldiers who shot civilians shows how terribly Britain walked and corrupted itself through its dreadful history with my troubled country. A history which has diminished us all. This article was by Neil McKay, writer at large. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 6th of May 2021, Arts and Entertainments. A Theatre for Dreamers by Polly Sampson, Bayard by Marianne Engel, The Pool of the Stars by Emma Donoghue, Paperback Reviews by Alistair Mabbott. A Theatre for Dreamers, Polly Sampson, Bloomsbury, £8.99. In 1960, 18-year-old Erica runs away from her domineering father in London, taking along brother Bobby and boyfriend Jimmy to the Greek island of Hydra, where a colony of writers and artists has coalesced around her mother's old friend, Charmian Clift, and her husband, George Johnson. From the sidelines, Erica is watching the drinking, sex and bickering going on in this bohemian enclave when couple Axel Jensen and Marianne Elon are split up by newcomer Leonard Cohen, who takes up with Marianne and makes her his muse. As the summer goes on, she realises that this progressive idyll is just another patriarchal community with women as the support staff, not very different from the one she left. Based on real people and events, it's an absorbing coming-of-age story that interrogates the macho principles underlying literary and artistic scenes while conjuring up the sense and pace of life of a sun-baked Mediterranean island. Bear, Marianne Engel, Daunt, £9.99 In what has been called the greatest Canadian novel ever written, and which is certainly one of the most controversial, an institute is bequeathed an old house on an isolated Ontario island, and dowdy archivist Lou is sent to take stock of its contents. While familiarising herself with its library, she also has to look after the old bear chained up behind the house. To Lou, who feels old before her time and defined by the dusty relics she studies, the bear provides a connection to wildness and eroticism, and over the next few months they become increasingly intimate. Engel's tone is sly, provocative and frequently comedic, pairing Lou's examination of the colonial mindset of the housebuilder with her bold sexual advances towards the bear. Originally issued in 1976, Engel's tightly focused novella-length fable has lost none of its power, the issues it addresses of appropriation and indigenous culture still no closer to being resolved. The Pool of the Stars, Emma Donoghue, Picador, £8.99. Donoghue wrote this well before the pandemic, but its setting, Dublin during the 1918 flu epidemic, with wary inhabitants living under the constant threat of infection, feels uncannily contemporary. Nurse Julia Power works in a maternity ward, caring for infected pregnant women. In a short-staffed hospital, nurses like Julia are working themselves to exhaustion, helping women already weakened by poverty and malnutrition. She's joined by her capable assistant, Bridie Sweeney, and Dr Kathleen Lynn, based on a real person who was a medic during the Easter Rising. 
Although compassion, female solidarity and dedicated service are at the core of the novel, Donahue keeps the suffering and terrible conditions front and centre. The pull of the stars piles woe upon woe in uncompromisingly visceral imagery. If it loses its way towards the end, for the most part Donahue steers it steadily, excelling in strong characterisation and a vivid sense of time and place. By Alistair Mabbitt, Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 6th of May 2021. Arts and Entertainments Nikesh Patel, Rose Matafio, Starstruck by Teddy Jameson, Senior Features Writer how, I asked Nikesh Patel, do you film sex scenes in the middle of a pandemic? Scratch that, how do you even do kissing scenes? All I will say, Patel explains, is it involved lots of testing, lots of swabs up the nose, some truly horrific antibacterial mouthwash, and at any given opportunity we had masks on until it was time to act. Ah, the romance of it. It's possible that you may have recently fallen in love with Patel. Since he appeared in the Channel 4 drama Indian Summers, he's become a regular on our TV screens, most recently in the Mindy Calling reboot of Four Weddings and a Funeral on Hulu. And now he has turned up as Rose Matafio's love interest in the BBC 3's Starstruck. The whole series is currently streaming on BBC iPlayer. It is also on BBC One on Monday nights, one episode a week, but to be honest, it's hard to imagine you'll have the patience to wait a week between episodes. It's very bingeable. Written by Montafio and Alice Sneddon, this rom-com sitcom is a sweet, self-confident, glorious thing. At a push, you can see the ghost of Richard Curtis's Notting Hill and even Nora Ephron hovering above it. Montafio, who is 29 and an Edinburgh Fringe regular, is a joyous, bubbling screen presence as Jesse. It's to Patel's credit that he is her match in the series. Patel plays Tom Kapoor, who meets Jesse in the men's toilets on New Year's Eve. They spend the night together, after which she realises her one-night stand is actually a famous actor. The rest of the series follows the push and pull of their will-they-won't-they romance. Patel offers a likeable, restrained presence to Matafio's nerdy comic energy. Well, that and his good looks, it's a bit of a theme. When he turns up in Indian summer, the tabloids became a tad obsessed with the scenes in which he was shirtless. In Four Weddings and a Funeral, his character was described as Ryan Gosling dipped in caramel. Now here he is, playing a successful actor and a bit of a heartthrob. Typecasting again, Nikesh? It's very kind of you to say so, he says laughing, brackets while also avoiding the question, close brackets. Patel is at home in northwest London this April afternoon. I live with my flatmate, who's an old friend of mine. I feel like everyone who's living with someone in lockdown. We've had our own version of DIY couples therapy, he says. Patel was already a fan of Matafio's stand-up before he signed up for Starstruck, but reading these scripts was great. If you know her stand-up, you know what a wonderful voice she has. She's very honest. I think she gets something about what it's like to be obsessed over someone. Or even if you're just passionate about someone. It's a good sign when you're rooting for the couple, and then you have to remember you're going to play one half of that couple. Playing a successful, handsome actor is easy money, presumably, I tell him. He doesn't put the phone down on me. The obvious thing is an understanding of the world that Tom is in, he concedes. Certainly my career is not in the same place in terms of the kind of fame that he has. I don't think I would particularly wish that. But there's an understanding of what the business is like. Matafio is part Scottish, part Croatian and part Samoan. Patel has South Asian roots. One of the many pleasures of Starstruck is the way it doesn't feel the need to even comment on its characters' ethnicities. I think it feels real, Patel suggests. It was Patel who suggested that his character's surname should be changed to one reflecting his own heritage when he came on board. 
I didn't want to ignore the fact that I'm brown and I'm casting this part, and but nor did I want to insist that a whole host of other things have to change. Without being glib, I don't set out to do things in a South Asian way. I exist in the body I am in, and me being in this story on screen does a lot of that work. I live in London, our mayor's a can, we have a Sunak and a Patel in the cabinet. I don't think it's going to break people's brains that I'm playing a Kapoor. It's a good time for British Asian actors, he thinks. This is the year that Riz Ahmed was an Oscar nominee after all, he points out. I think maybe a few years ago the term colourblind would have been held up as an end goal. But actually, I think there is something more nuanced, which is about being colour conscious. The filming of Starstruck happened between lockdowns, but like many actors, he's been cooling his heels for much of this last COVID-infected year. It's been a struggle for many, he says, but there has been the odd good thing to come out of it. There was something about the start of lockdown when everything was just stopped. There were weeks when we didn't have to worry about checking in with our agents, and that allowed space and time to step back. I think one thing I've realised was one benefit of having done this for 10 years now is I've formed relationships and I've become aware of brilliant people I want to collaborate with and work with, getting more of a sense of a community, particularly for my fellow South Asian creatives. As it stands, we've not really had the chance to collaborate before because the system is such that the stories we get cast in, there's space for one of us. There's a change I've noticed in the last years. More stories are being told that value or seek to improve representation. It's been really great meeting people at casting and going, wouldn't it be great when we're not all vying for one slot and we're telling something together? And I think I've really taken that away from lockdown. It's going to take a bit of time channeling that energy, but it definitely has got my juices going to create and collaborate. Time for a quick Q&A, I tell him. Starstruck is a sitcom that has fun with pub quizzes, hash brownies, movie discussions, the etiquette of going out with actors and dating in general in the 21st century. The following questions are all drawn from what's said and done in Starstruck itself. What are your parents' names and which do you like more? My dad's name is Barat and my mum's is Taralata. And I'm a mummy's boy so I'm going to go for mum. Do you date actors or civilians? I have dated civilians, but I'm going to quickly jump on and say how objectionable the term civilian is. I've dated actors and non-actors. Do you eat bread? Brackets. In the series, his agent, played by Minnie Driver, reminds him not to. Close brackets. Yes, Jesus, yes. Do you love a pub quiz? I really love a pub quiz. One of the saddest things about lockdown was the pathetic clinging on to the pub quiz experience by doing them on Zoom. With the best will in the world, it's just not the same. One of the things I'm really looking forward to, getting back in a pub and doing a quiz. When was the last time you were starstruck yourself? Oh I know, just before the pandemic happened I was in LA and I remember seeing Chris Evans and I was like, that's Captain America. He's right there and he was in a t-shirt and jeans. I was pretty starstruck by that. Are actors boring? I think I'm pretty boring. I think a lot of them can be. Not all. I think a lot of them come alive in their work and away from their work they're not particularly exciting. Or maybe that's just me. When was the last time you ate hash brownies? It would have been in Amsterdam a few years ago. And which is the best film in the Rush Hour series? It's definitely not Rush Hour 3. One last question, as everyone sits down to watch Starstruck, what's Patel's own favourite rom-com? The Princess Bride. I think that might be the most rewatched film in the flat over lockdown. That story doesn't work if you aren't completely rooting for Wesley and Buttercup. What does that make Nikesh Patel? A romantic as well as a romantic heartthrob? Starstruck is on Mondays on BBC One. The entire series is available on BBC iPlayer.
by Teddy Jameson. The Herald, Friday the 7th of May 2021. News. Bradley Welsh, Sean Orman, convicted of murdering trainspotting actor. This article is by Jodie Harrison. A hitman has been convicted of murdering trainspotting T2 actor Bradley Welsh. Sean Orman, 30, was found guilty at the High Court in Edinburgh on Friday of shooting dead Mr Welsh, 48, on his doorstep in Edinburgh's West End in 2019, a court official confirmed. The trial heard evidence that Orman gunned down Mr Welsh with a shotgun after being paid £10,000 by gangland figures to carry out the attack. Mr Welsh ran a boxing gym and was ambushed as he returned to his home in the city's new town on April the 17th that year. He appeared in Danny Boyle's 2017 sequel to Trainspotting. Orman was also found guilty by jurors of attempting to murder Mr Welsh's friend David McMillan around a month beforehand, the court official said. He was convicted of attacking Mr McMillan with a machete in Pitcairn Grove, Edinburgh on March 13th that year, striking him on his head and body to his severe injury. The trial heard that police were warned about the plot to kill Mr Welsh in the month before his death, after being alerted by a man called Dean White. Mr White had told the court he was at his brother's house when Ormond brought a wad of cash out and bragged about his plan to shoot the gym owner. Mr White said, He said that his next hit he was getting £10,000 to kill Bradley Welsh. I went to the police and reported this before it happened. This article is by Jodie Harrison. The Herald, Friday the 7th of May 2021. News. Coronavirus and Mori, under 40s, offered COVID-19 vaccinations to control outbreak. This article is by Gemma Ryder. COVID-19 vaccinations are now being offered to under 40s in Mori in an attempt to combat an uncontrolled outbreak of the virus. People aged 18 to 39 who have not already received an appointment are to be contacted from Saturday, initially by phone and by letter from the middle of next week. Mori has been struggling with sustained community transmission of coronavirus with current restrictions failing to contain the spread. Yesterday, NHS Grampian urged even those without COVID symptoms to get tested. The latest statistics show Mori had 79.3 cases per 100,000 people over the last seven days, significantly higher than the rate in the rest of the country. The Health Board has launched an incident management team, IMT, to try to bring the virus back under control and is urging people to get tested even if they do not have symptoms. Door-to-door testing is being heavily considered for Elgin, the epicentre of the outbreak. Maury's case rate is significantly higher than the rest of the country. Nearby, Aberdeenshire and Highland had just 10 and 11 cases per 100,000 respectively. Other health boards have also started inviting under 40s for vaccinations, including NHS Western Isles. Katrina Morrison, clinical lead nurse for the COVID-19 vaccination programme in NHS Grampian said, additional COVID-19 Pfizer vaccination stock and the 
concerning uncontrolled, sustained community transmission of COVID-19 in Moray has made this decision straightforward. It needs to happen quickly and our staff have been mobilised to speed up the process. Working together to reduce the spread in Moray will reduce the risk of further spread to Aberdeenshire and Aberdeen. The slightly accelerated delivery in Moray will not delay the programme or negatively impact on the work planned throughout Grampian. We urge the residents in Moray to make every effort to attend their allocated appointment time to help us protect them and the community. If individuals cannot attend their allocated appointment, they are advised to get in touch using the contact details they will be provided with. This is really important as it reduces the risk of any vaccine wastage. The Health Board said the Mori outbreak is concentrated in Elgin, but cases are also rising in Lossiemouth, Bucky and Keith. East and Bartonshire has the second highest number of cases in Scotland, with 37.7 per 100,000. This article is by Gemma Ryder. The Herald, Friday the 7th of May 2021. News. Keir Starmer. Labour has lost the trust of working people. This article is by Hannah Roger. Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer has admitted his party has lost the trust of the working people after they lost the Hartlepool by-election. Speaking this afternoon, Mr Starmer vowed to do whatever is necessary to fix the failure among working-class people he claims is to blame for the Conservatives taking the constituency for the first time in its history. He said he was bitterly disappointed and said, I take full responsibility for the results and I will take full responsibility for fixing this. We have changed as a party, but we haven't set out a strong enough case to the country. Very often we have been talking to ourselves instead of to the country and we have lost the trust of working people, particularly in places like Hartlepool. I intend to do whatever is necessary to fix that. The leader has come under fire from all sides since the result was declared overnight, with several high-profile figures, including Lord Adonis, calling for him to step down. However, Mr Starmer said he was the right person to lead Labour and will make a plan to reconnect with voters. He said... I will set out what changes needed over the next few days and I'm absolutely clear in my mind and absolutely determined to do whatever is necessary to fix things and to make sure we can make that case to the country in a compelling way. He went on, I will set out what we need to do to reconnect the Labour Party to the voters that have cast their verdict on us last night, particularly in places like Hartlepool. Several Labour grandees this morning sought to blame Jeremy Corbyn for the poor result, with Peter Mandelson, the former MP for the area, saying he was still casting a dark cloud over the party. However, MPs John McDonnell and Diane Abbott, allies of Mr Corbyn, denied it was related to the former leader and urged Keir Starmer to change tack. Ms Abbott said on social media, It was not possible to blame Jeremy Corbyn for this result. She added, Labour won the seat twice under his leadership. Keir Starmer must think again about his strategy. This article is by Hannah Roger. Friday the 7th of May 2021, the Herald Scotland Sports Section.
Stuart Robertson reveals details of Rangers Museum Project ahead of 150th anniversary at Ibrooks. Stuart Robertson, the Rangers Managing Director, is confident a new Ibrooks Museum will tell the history of the club and Glasgow as the champions enter their 150th year. Rangers will become the first major European club to reach that landmark next season and they head into a historic campaign with a 55th league title on their honour roll following their Premiership success this term. Work on new Edmonston House commenced earlier this year and the revamped building will host a club store and event space as well as a museum that will be the centrepiece attraction. It is fantastic to see the works actually happening. The enabling works have started, the drainage work have started and we now have got the planning permission in place and building warrants in place for new Edmonston House, Robertson told Rangers TV. This is a really important project for the club, a massive investment for the club going into its 150th year. A key part of that will be the museum. People have talked for many, many years about Rangers having a museum. For a club of Rangers size, I personally and the board also believe that we should have a museum. It is not just something that is going to show objects. It is going to be something that tells the story of Rangers heritage, the very rich heritage and history that we have to tell. It is a good story to tell. Delighted that we are getting things up and running on that side of things. The museum will be split into a series of different themes to tell the story of Rangers' illustrious history and their greatest triumphs as legendary managers and heroic former players are remembered forever. Proposals to build a museum space have been highlighted for several years by supporters and they will now get their wish as Rangers prepare to celebrate a landmark campaign and their place within Glasgow and Scottish football. Robertson said, It is very much about telling the story. We have got 150 years of history to tell the story. The growth of Rangers is interwoven with the growth of Glasgow and the role that Rangers played with Glasgow's society. We want to tell the story. We want to make sure that the supporters can maybe learn things that they are not aware of about the club. We have got so many things to show as well. There will be plenty of objects that the supporters will get to see that they have not seen before and it has been fascinating in the period since we started this project what has come to light. But we also want to broaden the story out. There are a lot of people come to Glasgow and we want to be on that tourist trail as well and make sure that the Rangers Museum is a place people want to come and see when they visit Glasgow. The work to get the museum project up and running has been painstaking in recent times and Rangers would employ Joe Morrison as their collections assistant to oversee the wide range of trophies, artefacts and trinkets that will be on show. Some items will be removed 
from the famous trophy room and at Ibrooks to be part of the exhibition, but Robertson is sure the two sites will complement each other to shine a light on the glorious successes from Rangers past. Robertson said, I actually feel that the main stand is a bit of a museum sometimes, and you see the reaction we get to the trophy room and the main stand when we have European clubs visiting. They are blown away by some of the artefacts we have got in there and the history of the club. But this isn't about decanting the trophy room into the museum. This is very much about the two complementing each other, about looking at what we do with stadium tours as well. It is going to be a tough decision as to what goes into the museum and what goes into the trophy room, but that is something that we will decide in the coming months. I am sure everybody will have an opinion. Importantly, we will seek the fans through my jurors and season ticket holders, seek their opinions and their views as to what they want to see as well. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 7th of May 2021, Arts and Entertainments. Chef Jimmy Lee reminisces about Shatleroe Country Park by Susan Swarbrick, columnist and senior features writer. Jimmy Lee, Chef. Where is it? Shatleroe Country Park in Hamilton, South Lanarkshire, a former hunting lodge with a formal parterre garden, is located in the park's heart. The Cadso Castle ruins, Cadso Oaks and the Duke's Bridge are all accessible via more than 10 miles of path and walkways. The scenery and viewpoints are pretty spectacular. Who do you go there? My hometown is Hamilton I grew up close to the park. My mother and father still live there and I visit them as often as I can. How often do you go? At least once a year. Because we didn't have a garden when I was a kid, I would go to Shatleroe Country Park at least once a week to play with friends and family. What's your favourite memory? My sisters and I used to go exploring every nook and cranny of the park when we were kids. We once went into the steep undergrowth when I was 12. I shouldn't have bothered though because I fell and slid about 20 foot down, hitting branches and bushes along the way. My sisters could only hear my screams for help from a distance. However, like a scene in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, I landed unharmed on my two feet on a walkway. Who do you take? Family and friends. What do you take? My worst pair of gutties. Brackets, that's plimsolls to anyone who doesn't know. Close brackets. It can get mucky and muddy. What do you leave behind? Only footprints. We need to protect our green spaces now more than ever. The health and well-being benefits of exploring the great outdoors are enormous. And if we keep Scotland's outdoors tidy, then places like Shatleroe Country Park will be preserved for future generations. Sum it up in five words. Memories, scenery, happiness, escapism, calm. What travel spot is on your post-lockdown wish list? I would love to return to Morocco. You must see the hustle and bustle of Jamal Fana and Marrakesh. Chef Shaun, also known as the Blue City, is located further afield and has some of the country's most endearing medinas, as well as the all-important Instagrammable blue-painted buildings and street walls. I also want to visit London again when we can. Apps like TikTok have taken me to places around London I had no idea existed, such as the Barbican Conservatory and the Horniman Museum. Jimmy Lee's restaurant, Lychee Oriental, 59 Mitchell Street, Glasgow, is open daily from 12pm and is pop-up Salt and Chilli Oriental, 911 Dumbarton Road, Glasgow, is open Wednesday to Monday, brackets not Tuesdays, 
from 4pm. Visit lychiorientaluk and salt-chile.co.uk For more information on Shatleroe Country Park, visit slleisureandculture.co.uk by Susan Swarbrick. The Herald, Monday the 10th of May 2021. News. Four children among seven rescued after dinghy capsized off coast at East Lothian. This article is by Martin Williams. Five children and two adults have been rescued after a dinghy capsized during a Mercy mission off the east coast of Scotland. Coast guards were on the alert after a group of seven were in the water around one mile from Port Seaton, East Lothian, on Sunday. The boat capsized after a group of five on board offered assistance to three paddleboarders. Coast guards say they had all been struggling in choppy waters. As North Berwick Coast Guard Rescue Team arrived, those on the dinghy had taken two persons from the paddle boards to try and assist them to shore. But then the dinghy was seen to capsize, leaving all seven in the water. A third paddle boarder was discovered attempting to return to the harbour with three SUP boards and was recovered by lifeboat Kiruuz. The Kinghorn Volunteer RNLI crew, who were called at 3.29pm, managed to take all eight people to safety where two ambulance teams checked them over. The lifeboat then recovered the dinghy and three paddleboards and brought them back to Port Seaton. A North Berwick Coast Guard Rescue Team spokesman said, Thankfully, none of the parties involved required any onward medical attention. A Kinghorn NLI lifeboat spokesman added, Our volunteer crew was tasked at 15.29 following a 999 call to the Coast Guard reporting a small sailing dinghy and paddle boards in difficulty one mile off Port Seaton. There were two adults and five children on board. While approaching the scene, it was advised that the dinghy had capsized and seven occupants were in the water. We were soon alongside and pulled everyone to safety on board the lifeboat. An eighth person was making their way to Port Seaton with three SUP boards, but was making slow progress, so they were also recovered to the lifeboat. This article is by Martin Williams. Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 10th of May 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Eddie Reader on her modern take on Robert Burns by Billy Sloan. Eddie Reader sings the songs of Robert Burns 2003. Eddie Reader and I have something in common. We both once felt complete indifference for the works of Robert Burns. On the rare occasions it was taught at school, I stared out of the classroom window. I had posters of Pete Townsend and David Bowie in my bedroom wall. They were my poets. Meanwhile, Eddie was consumed by the cool jazz of greats such as Billy Holiday and Duke Ellington. Old Lang Syne felt nothing more than a maudlin drunken wail at Hugmanay parties. And My Love Is Like a Red Red Rose was strictly the domain of more traditional Scottish performers like Kenneth McKellar or Moira Anderson. In the maturity of our later years, we thankfully both discovered the real beauty of the bard. Eddie's belated passion for Burns led directly to my own appreciation of his music. Growing up, my interest in Robert Burns was minimal, if not non-existent, she confessed. I thought his work was for the highbrow, something rich people celebrated at posh burn suppers. It was not for the likes of me, 
the hardly educated council estate over Spillgirl. Burns wasn't something which seemed part of my life, but neither was going to university or having more intellectual pursuits. Now I see that I was wrong. I'm precisely the kind of person Burns wrote for. In 1975, the Reader family relocated to Irvine as part of the Glasgow housing overspill. At 16, I attended Greenwood Academy in Irvine, the same school Nicola Sturgeon later went to, and there was a female teacher who was really into Burns, said Eddie. She didn't seem to like me, but I didn't take it personally because the overspill was a massive influx into the town. A lot of people saw us as invaders who were bringing our bull star 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 tea with us. But it was thanks to that move that I was introduced to Robert Burns. Eddie became a regular at a local folk club and watched musicians like Dick Gohan and Michael Mara celebrate his music. She said, They were more rootsy and folky and from a generation who were a little bit older than me, but they were much more intimate with Burns than I was. They knew all about his intellectual brilliance. My only exposure to his music was opera-style singers performing his songs on TV at New Year. So as a result, I didn't really understand it. Eddie soaked up the songs of Burns while exploring her own musical path. She learned her craft as a busker in London and across Europe. A period singing with diverse acts like Eurythmics, Billy McKenzie, Gang of Four, John Fox and Alison Moye also proved an invaluable apprenticeship. In 1988, Eddie got her first big break, forming the band Fairground Attraction with songwriter Mark E. Nevin. Their debut album, First of a Million Kisses, was an enjoyable musical ragbag of pop, jazz, skiffle and country-flavoured songs. It produced three hit singles, most notably Perfect, which topped the UK charts. The band won two Brit Awards, Best Single and Best British Album. But Eddie was ill-suited to the glare of the pop spotlight. Growing friction within the band led to sessions for a second album being scrapped. RCA Records rush released iPhone Kiss in a bid to capitalise on the band's pop success. The album's title song, misspelt by the label, was Eddie's first real recording of a Burns composition and a pointer for what lay ahead. Two years later, Mir Mama kicked off a run of impressive solo albums. Her seventh record, Eddie Reader Sings the Songs of Robert Burns, was released by Rough Trade on May 12, 2003. The does as it says in the tin title belies the musical dexterity and sheer quality of what many now regard as a defining album. However, she was warned that her decision to reinterpret Burns' work was career suicide. I met real resistance from my manager, Pete Jenner, who said, You're ruining your career, revealed Eddie. He felt so strongly that I was doing the wrong thing, but I really wanted to do it. The songs were jumping out at me. And to be fair to Pete, when he saw I was serious about it, he was fantastic. He got behind the project 100%. Then he said, look, the best way to do this is do it big. In August 2002, Eddie set up bass in a Glasgow flat with folk musicians Phil Cunningham, Ewan Vernal, John McCusker and Boo Huardine to rehearse the songs. She had also collaborated with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra with conductor stroke arranger Kevin McRae. Eddie premiered the project the following January, playing two concerts with the orchestra as part of Celtic Connections. It paved the way for the album recording at Cava Studios in Glasgow. I didn't want it to be all po-faced Kenneth McKellar style music, she said. When folk musicians go into the studio, they tend to lose their sense of freedom. They feel they've got to pin it down a bit more professionally. That's an anathema to me. What I wanted was the loose stuff you get when you play in the pub. So that was something I would push for and insist on, but in a gentle way. Eddie admits she did have a few reservations about reinterpreting Burns. 
On the first day, I remember walking in and seeing all the various musicians assembled, Eddie recalled. Everyone was a little nervous. I know I was. In a situation like that, I'm an underconfident, nail-biting little girl, but somehow it just felt special. The music just took me by the hand and carried me through. I was frightened to talk to the orchestral people, but only because I had such great respect for them. But Kevin McRae was magnificent. He just got it. He had that romanticism, and there was something about the way he would hear what I was doing and where I was going with my voice. When I heard the rising strings of Jamie Come Try Me or iPhone Kiss, I knew I was in the company of musicians of amazing expertise. It was like a huge musical comfort blanket. All I had to do was show up and sing. Eddie put a modern spin in real jewels such as Charlie Is My Darling, Willie Stewart stroke Molly Rankin, Winter It Is Past and John Anderson My Joe, paying reverence to the original compositions. Suddenly what had seemed a risk now felt completely natural. She said there were a couple of songs where it was just me in the orchestra. I stood in the vocal booth watching all their violin bows going up skywards. I felt I was being elevated. It's embedded in my marrow. I did most of my vocals in straight takes. At times there were maybe little flaws if I let go, but sometimes flaws are good. I'm very accepting of that. I am neurotic, but not so neurotic where I'd be doing 57 takes. I'd need to get it in the first two or three. Then Eddie faced what seemed like insurmountable obstacles from the London-focused media. She said, Pete told me I'd never understood racism against Scotland from England until I tried to sell this album to The Guardian, The Independent and The Times. As one, they all said, isn't this just a Scottish thing? It was remarkable to get that from Pete because our relationship with English media and its ignorance of Scottish iconography or art was almost an ignored part of our Anglo-Scot relationship and gave me even more resolve to hold up as a valuable work. Despite that initial resistance, the album earned Eddie the best reviews of her career and credited her with taking Burns' music to a whole new audience, or as is in my case, reintroducing people to work previously dismissed or ignored. I don't feel responsible for doing anything to Burns, but what happened was simply that people maybe got something out of it, said Eddie. Some reviews said, do we really need yet another version of Charlie as my darling? It was disrespectful, but I thought, I'm doing it anyway. By making the album, I've ended up with something I'm very proud of because of the beauty it brought to me. It also gave me a bunch of songs I wasn't going to get bored of. Every time I sing them, they change shape. They're not stuck to a formula. It's the most pulsating form of music. The Billy Sloan Show is on BBC Radio Scotland every Saturday at 10pm. The day Patti Smith gave me a compliment and a row. The first time Eddie Reader sat down to listen to her album of the songs of Robert Burns, things were a little hazy. I was still heavily partying in those days, so I was stoned. I remember thinking, my love is like a red, red rose, is just too beautiful. Everybody is going to laugh at me, she recalled. I got this paranoid sense I'd somehow got it all wrong. I was dabbling in stuff that didn't suit me. Then when I got sober, I listened to it once through with my husband John. I think it worked. I left it behind me then. I only revisited it when I made the deluxe version in 2012 and added some new songs to it. By then the album had been fully accepted. Everybody seemed to love it and by that time I loved it too. Eddie has fond memories of when she premiered the record with two triumphant shows at the Royal Concert Hall in Glasgow. She performed Burns songs with her band in the RSNO led by Kevin McRae. Kevin was standing batting ready and I started the song in the wrong key, she said. All my pals were saying, Edna's F star 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 up. 
behind me I could feel all this turmoil, but nobody wanted to say, what are you doing? The whole audience were laughing, but that broke the ice and from then on it was great. A very natural thing that happened which was that my scatty heed came in to save us all from that freaked outness we were in. Eddie had also performed with the RSNO at the Burns and all that festival staged in Killeen Castle in Ayrshire. She shared the spotlight with Patty Smith who is also a Burns aficionado. The Queen of New York punk had some very kind words for the Scottish singer. I was in the green room when she walked up to me. It was like seeing an angel, Eddie recalled. She told me my version of John Anderson, my Joe, brought back memories of her late husband. She said, I just want to tell you, that song you did, John Anderson, my Joe, it reminds me of Fred and I love it. I think it's the best thing I've ever heard. I said, oh, thank you very much. She replied, and I'm not bull, star, 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 you. She gave me into a row straight away for getting all frothy with her. By Billy Sloan. Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 10th of May 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Sky. Kate Spears and the Island's Many Charms. By Susan Swarbrick, columnist and senior features writer. Kate Spears, TV presenter and lifestyle blogger. Where is it? Sky. Why do you go there? I've only ever been there for work and once with a friend for a quick overnight trip. But from my first visit I fell in love. The scenery is mesmerising. It's like no other place I've ever been. The breathtaking volcanic landscape feels otherworldly and I'll never tire of the view from the sky bridge, especially at sunset. This summer I'm hoping I can stay a little longer and really see the sights. It truly is a special place. How did you discover it? The first time I went to Sky was to film the debut series of Scotland's Home of the Year and we've been back every year since. We've managed to see a fair bit of the island now but it still amazes me with its natural beauty. What's your favourite memory? We spend a lot of time just driving between locations during filming so I have a lot of memories of listening to music through my headphones while taking in the surroundings. Occasionally we stop to take photos because it deserves to be captured. I try to see as much of the island as I can, not following the map too much, but seeing where the road takes me. I always make a stop at Kaurahoo Coffee Shop in Carbost for a flat white with a view and, of course, the Sligachan Old Bridge in the ferry pools can't be missed. Who do you take? I've been promising to take my husband Jordan for years, so I'm hoping we can travel there this summer. He's never been to Sky before, but I'm sure he's sick of hearing about it. I can't wait to show him my favourite corners of the aisle. What do you take? A good playlist for the long drive. My camera plus a warm coat and walking shoes. I'll grab a bottle of local gin while we're there. What do you leave behind? My laptop. Some trips should be free of distractions. Sum it up in five words. Rugged, raw, spectacular, peaceful, untouched. What travel spot is on your post-lockdown wish list? Schlanka. It was on our list for last year and I'm still hoping to make it at some point. As soon as it's safe to do so, we will be booking those flights. We'd love to do a bit of a tour to see the Nine Arch Bridge in Ella and Pidderingala Rock further north. Sri Lanka is home to some of the most incredible beaches in the world, so I'd make sure we spent some time in the coast too. Scotland's Home of the Year is on BBC Scotland Wednesdays at 8pm. Episodes are repeated in BBC One Scotland on Mondays at 7.35pm and available on BBC iPlayer. Applications to take part in Series 4 of Scotland's Home of the Year should be sent to scotlandshomes at iwcmedia.co.uk and should include contact details, a brief description of the home and a few pictures. Please note, only primary residencies can apply to take part. By Susan Swarbrick. 
Recorded from the Herald on the 11th of May 2021. From the Sports Section. Scottish Cup Final. SFA confirmed limited numbers of fans allowed inside Hamden for showpiece. By Mark Hendry. The SFA have confirmed there will be a limited number of fans in attendance at the Scottish Cup Final this season. A statement confirmed supporters will be permitted to watch the game between Hibs and St Johnson from inside Hamden, despite initial fears there would be no such permission from the Scottish Government. The governing body for Scottish football went on to reveal they would be submitting an appeal to improve the number of fans allowed inside for the showpiece final on May 22nd from the usual 500 under level 2 restrictions. The statement read, The Scottish FA has today received approval from UEFA to a revised proposal that will enable a limited number of supporters to attend the Scottish Cup final at Hampden Park on May 22nd. We have now made a submission to Scottish Government for permission to increase the number of spectators from the maximum 500 permitted under level 2 restrictions. We are grateful to UEFA for removing the condition that required the final to be played behind closed doors after the postponement of the tie from May 8th to 22nd due to the suspension of football during the second wave of the pandemic. We are pleased that UEFA have now agreed to a proposed solution prior to Hampden Park hosting four matches, each in front of 12,000 supporters, as part of the UEFA Euro 2020. We await a positive response from the Scottish Government and will communicate final confirmation of maximum support numbers with Hibernian and St Johnson as soon as possible to enable ticket sales to proceed. Aberdeen had initially offered to host the final at Pitodry to allow some fans to attend, but there is a sense of relief that Hampden and Glasgow will now be able to do so. The SFA also looked at the possibility of taking the final to Celtic Park or Ibrox with no joy. UEFA, meanwhile, take control of Hamden this weekend to prepare for the Euro 2020 fixtures and had originally refused the idea of fans inside the ground for the Scottish Cup final, though they now appear to have compromised on the issue. That article was by Mark Hendry. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.